This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, I meant to mention this a couple of weeks ago, and I sadly forgot. Uh, I wanted to give you the proper respect for being a hero. <laughs> a hero? <laughs> you saved some fruit trees. Oh, my rescue trees! <laughs> <laughs> What's the story there? Okay, so, um, I mean, I've, ta- I've talked about it on Patreon a little bit, how I've, I finally have a hobby for the first time in my life. Like, I've never, never had time for a hobby. I still don't have time, but I never had desire. I never found anything I was interested in enough. All I ever did was just work, 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 work. I mean, because, you know, trying to start life as an adult in your third, you know, early 30s, when you didn't even have an education, it's just all consuming, you know, moving from the cult into society, never had time to do anything for my personal self. And I've, I've really burned out hard. And, um, I realized that for some strange reason, I love plants and flowers and trees and I just love them. I'm not good at taking care of them, but I love them. And, uh, I was in a gardening center some time back and, you know, right now in Texas, it's in the hundreds. Uh, it's it's just the heat is. Ugh. I mean, we're we're notorious for this. We know what the heat is. Like. Everybody knows. So, um, you know, the gardening centers start clearing out stuff at a certain point because the planting season is over, and nobody wants to be digging holes to plant trees at you know in hundred degree heat. And it's not good for the trees either to be transplanted like that. And I saw all these trees that were, like, being cleared out. And I was like, well, somebody's got to take them. <laughs> it might as well be me. <laughs> so I um, I think I bought, like, ten trees. The six of them were, were citrus. <laughs> they, I cleared out every citrus tree they had. Um, they're little guys. They're only, like, four feet tall. And um, But it posed a dilemma because in – Citrus, some citrus, particularly grapefruit, and I think kumquat, maybe one other, they um, they can handle cold temperatures to like, you know, 20 degrees Fahrenheit or so. Um, but other citrus, you know, freezing cold temperatures damage them. And, and we get cold, really hard freezes here. Not every year, but I mean, it gets down into the, the low teens. I think you know, 10 degrees or so, and that'll kill the trees. So that's the problem with citrus in Texas is you just never know. So I was like, well, or at least North Texas, Southern Texas is probably fine. Um, I was like, well, what I'll do is I will put them in pots. You can grow some trees like giant pots. And, and that way, if we have a really cold snap, I, at least until they get really big, I can move them into the garage or whatever. And I'll figure out how to save them if, they get too big to put in the garage, but we'll deal with that further down the road. So I rescued these six citrus trees. I put them in big pots, and um, it's not really blossoming time. You know, it's a heat, but the grapefruit tree gifted me with a single solitary blossom, oh. and it smelled like heaven, and it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. 
So those are the proud parents. Six, uh, actually, it's seven because I also have a lime tree that I got separately. So yeah, seven trees. And so you were the person out there in 100 degree heat digging holes and planting trees. Yes, except I waited till it got dark. So like temperatures went down into the 80s. <laughs> Do it in the dark where it's not so hot. Not so hot. Okay, so a few days ago, I was reading a blog post. K.M. Wyland writes a really good blog on writing. And so I go in and check, check on it every so often. I was looking at an article, and one of the subheadings in the article, uh, the title of the article was, Why Do So Many Bad Books Sell on Amazon? And about halfway down the page, there's a subheading that says, Yes, Books Expire Now. And that just triggered something in my mind that we've talked about with Taylor in a couple times in the past, where the idea of how quickly your book needs to find footing as a traditionally published author and how that's different as an indie author, um, different but in some ways the same. So I thought this would be an interesting idea. I mean, just the idea of books expiring. When I first read that, I'm like, no, books don't expire. That's crazy. What's she talking about? But the more I thought about it, uh, the idea of a book's viability expiring um, sort of makes sense. So Taylor, can you sort of share your thoughts on how rapidly a book needs to catch hold uh, upon publication, a traditionally published book upon publication um, to be able to achieve the kind of success that publishers want for it? Well, I think there's there's more than one thing at play when we talk about books expiring. Um, what, really what they're, when we we're looking for is the initial sales, right? So in traditional publishing, long before Amazon came along as the virtual book, store, shelf, warehouse, whatever, um, everything was in bookstores. That's how people got all of their books. And the, the time frame that bookstores would keep books on their shelves was pretty small, about six to eight weeks for anything new that was coming out, unless it was selling pretty well or it had a lot of customers coming in to ask for it. And the more established authors, of course, would always have, they would always carry some of theirs because customers knew them and were asking for them. But most new books, new authors that were getting published didn't have the name recognition, didn't have that uh, discoverability, I guess you could say. And so six to eight weeks is pretty much it. In traditional publishing, even still, that's what they look at for sales. Um, back then, at that point, you know, the books would start trickling back to the publishers because publishers don't actually sell their books. They, they put them out on, um, I don't want to say commission is not the right word. Consignment. Consignment. Yes. And so when, when booksellers buy them, if they don't sell them, they ship them back, they get credit and they can buy more books with them. So after six to eight weeks, all the, the excitement of a book has died down typically and the books start going back to the publisher. Now with, with the way things work in digital land, the discoverability is always technically there. Um, but you're just buried, but you know, the backlist backlist is what they call, um, a book that is no longer fresh. So if I published a book today, that'd be my front list title. That's the one that's front and center. 
And after it's gone through its life expectancy, which is, like we said, very short, um, then it, it becomes backlist. And so backlist books are treated differently than frontlist titles are. So right now, your backlist lives on in per- perpetuity, if I can pronounce that properly, um, on the digital shelves, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target, Costco, you know, they, they all have these books available. They might not actually have them in stock other than digitally, but that you can still get them because they can get them from the publisher or from the warehouses pretty quickly. Um, so in that case, they're still showcased, but the the life really of a book before it quote unquote expires is, is very short. Um, what'll often happen now is, and, and I think this happens, especially for those who write digitally, um, is that as soon as you put out a new book, then if readers like it, they will go back and look to see what your other titles are and and potentially buy them, which because of the way that that books are shelved digitally now, that is possible. Whereas in the old days, um, they would have to take special care to to make those make sure those books were available when the books came out so that customers who wanted to get the backlist could get the backlist. So in some ways, it's a lot easier now to access all of an author's um, library. At the same time, because there are so many more books available and because so many more books are being published at a much rapid pace, the invisibility factor, uh, your book actually disappears much faster in terms of showing up. So like, Let's use Amazon for an example because that is sort of the the main place. They have such a huge percentage of the book market. Um, a lot of people who go browsing for books, they don't um, they don't see but beyond the very top bestsellers because I mean, how many pages are you going to go browsing through before your mind just gets overloaded? So for a book to get any visibility in that marketplace, it has to show up in those top ranking numbers. And it disappears from those top ranking numbers very quickly, within days, depending on the book. I mean, you get really mega best-selling authors, they, they're they just going to live in the, the top 100 or the top 1,000 or whatever. But for the rest of us, it release day comes, there's a big splurge, you know, the publisher advertises, people realize the book's available, they buy it. And then maybe within a week, depending on what type of author you are, maybe two weeks, some people might even be a month, you just you drop out and you're completely invisible at that point. And the only way that anyone's going to even know that your book exists is if they're specifically searching for something like it and it it becomes recommended as if you like this, then there's this other thing. If they know the title or, and this is the big one, word of mouth, um, other uh, readers saying, oh my God, you have to read this book. So as far as books actually expiring, expiring, it's not like um, food, you know, where it has a best use by date or an expiration date. And at some point you just have to throw it out because it's no good and you can't use it anymore. It's not like that. It's just in terms of discoverability or being considered worth reading. Like right now, um, I mean, I haven't looked lately, but the last time I looked, I mean, my 
Liar's Paradox, which is my most recent book, is probably like in the 200,000s or something on Kindle. Like nobody's buying it because nobody even knows it exists anymore because other books have come out. And it's always about what's fresh, what's new, what's the latest. People are talking about what's the latest. And so in that sense, you could say the book expired. It's not it's not happening anymore. And when the next one comes out, Liar's Legacy, which comes out in December, then people will be like, oh, yeah, I remember that series. And all of a sudden it's fresh again. And so that book will be new and it will spur some interest in the backlist. But they're still pretty much expired. So, yeah. All right. That's in, that's interesting. <clears throat> the whole concept of a book expiring is is seems crazy. You were talking about um, how people look for books and I'm assuming that what you're talking about is is people going in and looking for the just looking up uh, say thrillers for example and just looking at the top 20 or the top 50 or whatever it may be depending on how many pages you're willing to go to look through there. And I think about how I search for books, and it's almost never like that. If for me, it's like I'm in the mood for a book that has this and this and this. So I'll type those things in, and I will get a I will get 20 books that you'll have type, type it into Google. You'll type it into the whatever in, you're into using. the Amazon search okay. bar into the Amazon search bar, and I have developed a series of searches for the kinds of books that I like that generally get me good candidates for what I'm in the mood to read. But I think I'm probably in the minority in terms of reading. I think it's probably people who read a lot that do that kind of searching as opposed to, hey, it's, I'm, I'm going on vacation and I want to read something that everyone else is reading so I can talk to them about this book. Uh, or, or that book happens yeah, to be. Or it's the, they, it's the old familiar. Like I had something happen recently. Um, I have a lot of books that I just have available that I give away. Um, mm -hmm. with the Newsies, and um, I had uh, an extended family person was, was staying with me for a few days, and, and they were going to go on a trip, and um, I was like, well, yeah, here, let me let me take you, you can have some of these books. I mean, I didn't know if they were much of a reader at all, and they're like, yeah, I read. I mean, do you have, like, any James Patterson or whatever? And I was just like, oh, my God. You know, like, <laughs> no, no, I don't have any of that. Not that, you know, no dissing people who enjoy reading James Patterson, my point is that that's a, a brand name, right? So somebody mm -hmm. who's like, yeah, I read, I, I read a lot. Do you have any James Patterson? I'm like, no, you don't read a lot <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> if you did, there would be, you would know more like the genre that you like to read in or, or whatever, you know? And so, um, that, that, but to me, I see that as being what most people who buy books are like, like there are the avid readers and those are the ones that, probably contact that that are in my fan club group or Facebook like they read a lot and so when they find my stuff they're like oh my god this is awesome um because they know what they're looking for they know what they like but and that and that's like you you know what you're looking for you know what you're like but the average out of the the millions and millions of people who read novels um I would say the bulk of them are more like the person who's like do you have any James Patterson hmm all right. I remember you, you were talking about bookstores in the past, and I, I can remember very clearly – it was a long time ago. But I went in and saw all these books about this character named Nero Wolf, and I had 
tried to read one years ago and I hadn't enjoyed it, but I thought I'm going to try another one. So of course I'll get the first one. So I get the first one, I read it and I really like it. And I go back to the bookstore, which was a Barnes and Noble. And they have one copy of every book going forward. And it's, it's like that was – they clearly had a strategy of if there was a series, we're going to have at least one copy of every book so that people can go through it. There might, not, there might be five of the most recent book, but there was at least one of everything else. And now when I go into bookstores, I don't see that anymore. I might see book five in a series and book nine in a series, and that's it, and, and the new book. But I don't see that concentrated effort to have one of everything. So I don't know if that's because there are so many more books now or it, it's just a change in philosophy of, of booksellers where their focus is more on what's hot right now. Do you have any I, thoughts on that? I think that um, Barnes & Noble may have changed a lot over the years um, as it's changed hands and changed focus and stuff. Um, I do know that most of the book buying decisions are made at a corporate level. So like corporate decides which store, like say, for example, I, I'm publishing a book and my, the sales team at my publisher is going to have a direct link to the sales account at, well, all of the, the major sellers, but let's say Barnes and Noble as an example. And so they will be trying to convince Barnes and Noble to say, take 2000 copies. Well, corporate at Barnes Noble, the the headquarters makes that decision, and then they decide which stores are actually going to carry those books. So they're not necessarily going to send those books to every single market in in the country. They'll say, "All right, well, we've seen that this seller, this uh, writer, does good in." Um, Texas and New York and California. So we're going to send the stock to those to stores in those states like that. And so I think corporate also decides when books should go back. So if an author sells really well in a particular area, then they will be more inclined to keep that author's backlist on their shelves. But they may not necessarily order a new backlist when whatever they had gets bought because it's not selling fast enough and they would prefer to keep that shelf space available for something that um, is selling faster. And so it creates sort of a um, a catch-22 situation where if you're not on the shelves, well, of course you're not selling well in that area because nobody even knows to go buy your book in the first place. They never even see it. Um, and, you know, if nobody's buying your book in that area, well, then they're not talking about it to their friends. And so it kind of creates this perverse cycle where what has already sold well continues to sell well simply by virtue of it being available to be sold. But it's very much algorithmic mm. based on mm -hmm. what ends up on store shelves where. From a digital store standpoint, how much do you think ebook pricing has to do with how quickly um, a traditionally published book falls off or falls into the expired category? You know, I have debated that with myself back and forth because, you know, people are like, well, 
if your book was cheap, because my eBooks are priced high, I don't have any control over the pricing just as a clarification there, but they are priced the way that traditional publishers price their books, which is more than $9.99 in some cases. And so I've been told, well, you know, if your books were selling at a cheaper price point, um, then you would sell more of them and you would be more visible. And I, I know that on some level that has to be true. There are definitely going to be readers who are like, there's no way I'm going to pay $12.99 for an ebook. And so I'm automatically priced out of their market. But I don't know that bringing the cost down to $6.99 would automatically put me in either because they'd still have to discover the book in the first place. And I have one of my books online for 99 cents and it doesn't sell either. Um, well, I take that back. I mean, it doesn't sell crazy like, you know, oh my God, it's only 99 cents. Everybody in the world should buy this. It sells at the same rate as the books that are 9.99 or 11.99 or whatever. So I don't know that I know that price point has to factor into it at, for sure it does, but I just don't know how much it factors into it. What I've found is that when somebody loves a series, they're going to find a way, or, or an author, they're going to find a way to read that author's books regardless. They might wait until they become discounted. They might get them from the library. They might do a lot of different things, but they're going to find a way to read those books. Um, it's, it's in the discoverability aspect of it that the people are more willing to take a chance on an author that they haven't read if the price point is lower. But you're not, it's not, in isolation, if that author's books were the only books in the world, then yeah, that could be taken ex exactly at face value. But because there are so many books available and so many authors to discover, how much that price point actually factors into discoverability, again, I don't know. This is an interesting topic, um, the idea of, of cost, because I, I didn't know where you're going to go with that. And I'm thinking myself of all of the well we'll just shift over to the to the indie author um scenario now for expired books um to quote unquote using uh katie's terms um a, a, an indie author let's say the the book is 3.99 or 4.99 the book comes out it's released and there are if you just read author blogs, indie author blogs, or K-boards, or something like that, you will see the term cliff, 30-day um, cliff, 21-day cliff, 31-day cliff, 60-day cliff. You know, there's, they're all over the place, what, what people see as the cliff, and they're sort of different depending on genre, depending on, you know, a variety of things. But there is this cliff where your book just falls off the cliff from a ranking standpoint, where, you know, one day it's... Um, ranked 500, the next day it's ranked 5,000, the next day it's 10,000, the next day it's 20,000, and it just starts working its way down unless you do something to goose the sales back up again. Um, and Amazon is in a perfect position to help you with that because they have their own advertising platform now. So they make money from selling your books and they make money from helping you to sell the books. Um, but it is exactly the same. The pattern is exactly the same, whether the book is 
299 499 699 or $12.99. So to a certain extent, I don't think it's price. I do think price comes into play over the course of the first 60 days or 30 days, maybe, when people see it. And it does just cross their radar. And they say, yeah, I, I, I have the choice between this book and that book. If they're not a Taylor Stevens fan and they see another book that looks like it might give them the same ride, they might go for the less expensive book. But in terms of the shelf life for the book, unless something unusual happens, it's about, it seems like it's about the same time. Yeah, um, it's a nut that everybody wants to crack. Um, if everybody could, they would, you know, um, figure out how to extend the life of a book. Um, I, I just honestly think that it's... Um, it, it's a supply and demand issue. When you have so much supply and the demand is stable, then, you know, it's just, it's inevitable that with all the new, 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 to, to keep what's not new in the consciousness is, I mean, that's like fighting against human nature. Well, you, first you said, if if someone could crack this nut, that would be I, I forget exactly what you said, but you know, essentially that would be a good thing. But people have cracked the nut. And you you mentioned it earlier. The cracking of the nut is that when you release the next book in the series, the other your backlist sells more. And so that becomes in a in a world that's driven by algorithms, that becomes the way to sell more books. And so the more quickly you can produce books, and if you can produce the next book inside the cliff of the last book, then you can keep all of the books in your series ranked higher for a longer and longer period of time, although it just becomes nearly impossible to do that after a while. And I, I mean, it, uh, it'll burn you out for even though I've never been able to write that that quickly, but for anybody who can, I mean, it's going to burn you out. You you have you have an expiry date as yes, the, yes. the author on how long you can do that. And um, I, I've kind of given up on chasing algorithms. I mean, I appreciate every review, those affect algorithms. I appreciate every purchase, those affect algorithms. But I've realized that I cannot compete head to head in that algorithmic market. I simply can't. I write too slowly. I care too much. Um, about the words. And so I have to rely entirely on word of mouth. And it's it's not going to make crazy sales that way. Um, it's not going to guarantee being in bookstores, but it's the only way that I can stay sane. So if enough people would talk about my books and of course buy them or recommend or get their libraries to buy them or however they do it to to keep the sales high enough that the publishers want to keep publishing, then I've just taken sort of the slow and steady wins the race approach of, you know, this is what I do and trying to write faster to chase those algorithms, trying to do crazy things to, you know, get reader attention. That's going to burn me out faster. I I'll stop writing if that's the only way that I can sell books because I simply can't. You know, one of the original write fast and publish quickly, um, in the authors was Russell Blake, and he is finally starting to pull back um, a little bit, just like he's 
he's just doing other things and, and not publishing as many books. And he, a couple of years ago, started really expressing frustration with, with the market that insisted upon a new book every so many weeks. And then when it reached the point where even that wasn't enough, then you had to spend money advertising that book on the platform that was selling the book. Um, you know, it, it becomes a it becomes a cycle that's not working <laughs> for most people. It's it's a it's a difficult thing to keep up with. Um, you and I had really fascinating discussions about this years ago about um, how to how to basically get yourself to stand out as you know to find your unique selling proposition. What it is that keeps you and your books from just becoming one apple in a barrel of apples where it doesn't matter which apple people just take the apple where you actually, people recognize what you do and go, Oh yeah, I love that person's stuff. And we have no time to talk about it right now. And I don't know that we ever really found a fixed solution to it, but I know that, um, the, the those who the algorithmic pursuit works for it works for them until it doesn't um there's no uh, you know i i'm never going to say oh you shouldn't do that because it didn't work for somebody else cuz there's always someone who comes along and finds a new way to make the system work for them and go for it i'm it's awesome that you found your readership but when you think about how you know even russell blake who is putting out so many books so fast and had this huge, huge audience that he built up from that rapid production. If even he drops off the algorithmic um, treadmill, (laughs) treadmill, well, that should tell you about, you know, sustainability, longevity, and, you know, whether that really is a solution to to this industry, you know, discoverability or not, you know, maybe temporarily, yes, temporarily, but you know, you got to know yourself. And I know for me that will never work. So I just cannot write fast enough for that. So you got to, you know, you just got to find other ways to keep your books from expiring or from dropping out altogether. And, um, there's probably as many different, uh, solutions as there are people like, because it's so individual to each author's writing style, writing taste, work-life balance, and all of that. Well, and one of the things that happens, especially in the indie community, and uh, some of the traditional publishers are, are beginning to adopt some of the same strategies, is that something, you said this, something works until it doesn't work. And it, it seems to work until it reaches a tipping point when so many people are doing that, that it's not unique anymore. And then the next thing, you have to look for the next thing as as an indie author, or you have to develop the next thing or or recognize that, hey, this thing isn't going to last forever, so I need to be working on another way of of doing this and kind of trying to stay ahead of the curve instead of being the person who's constantly following the curve. I, I remember years ago um, when a, uh, a well-known author started a course on how to build your email list. It was a great course. And... There were lots of there's lots of good information there, and a lot of people use that to make a lot of money. And I remember asking him, "What's going to happen when everyone's doing this?" And he says, "Well, you know, the the ocean's too big. It's ne- it's never going to reach the point of diminishing returns where this doesn't work." Um, 
but I don't think that's true. I think it. I think it does reach a point where whatever it is that's working really well now starts working less well and less well and less well, and you can prop it up with things like advertising. Uh, but eventually, it's just it's not working anymore because too many people are doing it, and that market gets saturated. Agreed. And maybe it 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 comes back around to the point where the person, the you know, the bespoke author. Um, for lack of a better term, um, who publishes a book a year that's really high quality comes back into favor and there's, there's this great hue and cry for that kind of book rather than, you know, a year from now, what is it, a book a month or is it a book every two weeks or a book a week? You know, what does it take to, to keep the algorithm bouncing in your favor? And eventually it'll cycle around to something else. We can hope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that is it for this week on the uh, on the topic of whether or not books expire. And I, I contend, and Taylor and I have these discussions all the time where I just live in a, in a bubble world. And, um, I, I just, I believe that things are, are good. I don't believe that books ever expire. And I don't think that ideas expire. Um, but it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to debate. So thanks for being here this week, and we will be back in your ear again next Tuesday. See you guys next week.